This Washington Post Live podcast is presented by AT&T Business, keeping your business connected today and building it for tomorrow with 5G on America's best network. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former two-time mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg, won the Iowa caucus in February during his run to be the Democratic nominee for president. A Navy veteran who served in Afghanistan, he's the first openly gay person to ever win a presidential primary or caucus. Since suspending his own presidential campaign, Buttigieg endorsed Joe Biden, a critical move that helped bolster his campaign. Buttigieg is also slated to speak at the Democratic National Convention this week. He joins The Washington Post for a one-on-one interview with national political reporter Robert Costa. Let's listen. Good afternoon. Welcome back. I'm Bob Costa, a national political reporter here at The Washington Post. We're continuing our coverage of this virtual Democratic National Convention. This afternoon, I'm going to speak with two people. First, former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who ran for president earlier this year. He jumped from obscurity into contention with a strong showing in Iowa and other states. And then later, I'll speak with Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. But first, Mayor Buttigieg, welcome back to Washington Post Live. Thank you. Great to be back with you. Are you in South Bend? I am. Uh, yeah, South Bend's uh, perfect this time of year, as you know from your uh, time spent in Notre Dame. Obviously, wish uh, uh, that we were in Milwaukee. I thought it was a great decision to host the convention in the Midwest, but uh, this will have to do. And you know, so far, I feel like it's uh, it's been pretty impressive how everybody's adapted to this uh, virtual reality. We're all adapting, all doing our best. Let's move a little bit around, Mayor, in the Midwest to Iowa. I was struck yesterday by Democratic National Committee Chairman Tom Perez saying that by 2024, he'd like to see the entire presidential process, the nominating contest, move to primaries. Do you believe uh, that because of what happened with Iowa and you this year, that the caucuses should be no more? Well, obviously, the experience with the Iowa caucus was uh, very frustrating, the amount of time that it uh, took to get the results. I will say there is something to be said for that process where people, uh, you know, get in front of their friends and their their neighbors and, uh, you know, literally go into the corner of their candidate. But uh, I don't know that the caucus process has a future unless we can ensure that it is as inclusive uh, and as uh, free of complications as the primary process. There are a lot of different ways to do this, and I don't want to uh, prejudge what's possible. I do think we've learned that whatever we do going into 2024 is going to have to be a little different than what we've done up until now. But, Mayor, that app that went haywire in Iowa, wouldn't a primary process be cleaner or not? Yeah, one of the advantages of a primary process is that it's more straightforward. Uh, that being said, uh, look, we've got a lot of issues around the way that our nominating and election processes work, from the way the districts are drawn to the simple fact that uh, election day is not a holiday uh, in this country. There are so many things that right now make it uh, more difficult than it should be uh, for us to, to have smooth, efficient uh, elections. And uh, we really need to take a look at the condition of our democracy itself, especially when one party has decided uh, that its political strategy hinges in part on making it harder for people to vote. Um, there's a lot to that. And, uh, you know, it's never sexy, these process issues. Uh, but each passing year, we see more and more, I think, uh, the strain that it's putting on our self-image as the world's 
leading democracy. So long as we leave these issues unresolved, the American people want it. And I think the time has come for deep reform in every part of the process. Mayor, to that point, you've spent a lot of time on your campaign talking about democratic reforms, overhauling the system. Do you believe Vice President Biden is going to pursue any of that? Have you spoken to him about changing, making fundamental reforms to the Supreme Court, the Electoral College? One thing I was really gratified by was that uh, the Democratic uh, platform this year includes language about the importance of reforms to the courts to depoliticize them, something I thought it was very important to talk about on the campaign trail and an idea that I, I think we've uh, helped to popularize. Uh, I also continue to believe that uh, the Electoral College needs reform. I'm not sure uh, where that will sit in terms of the uh, uh, many, many priorities that will be on the president's desk. Uh, in, uh, as we hope, uh, a Biden-Harris administration. But we also know that actually the most efficient way to restore the American people uh, over the Electoral College as the, uh, those who get to choose the president uh, is actually through an interstate compact. Many states have already signed on to it. If a few more states do, uh, basically state legislation, one state at a time committing that they will uh, give their electoral votes to the winner of the popular vote, uh, it's a way to get that done sooner than the process of a constitutional amendment, which is the way to make it happen permanently. Bottom line, this ought to be a country where everyone's vote counts the same and where the American people can't be overruled in our choice of a president. And I remember being a high schooler thinking, you know, learning about the Electoral College, thinking, well, that's a odd historical artifact. I'm sure the first time it actually uh, overrules the American people in my lifetime, it'll never be seen again. That's now happened twice in my lifetime. And it's impacted our country in really serious and negative ways. Mayor, if you wanted to reform the Iowa caucuses or reform the government, you could do that, uh, especially the, uh, the caucus part, uh, by being chairman of the Democratic National Committee. In fact, that you first came on my radar as the, both the mayor of South Bend and as someone who was running for a Democratic National Committee chairman. Are you considering doing that again? Not right now. You know, I, I decided to run for DNC chair because in December of 2016, January 2017, I, I noticed certain things that I thought needed to change in our party. Uh, I, I felt that we needed to do a better job of connecting with the Midwest and with my part of the country. I thought we needed to do a better job of connecting with a new generation. Uh, I thought we needed to do more around technology. Uh, I felt that uh, it was important for us to reach out in some of the more conservative areas that uh, we hadn't, but where I thought that we could make gains and win. And in all of those areas, uh, under the leadership of, of Tom Perez, we've seen uh, a lot of that growth and a lot of that improvement. And uh, I think the needs of the DNC in 2021 uh, are going to be you know, still many, it's still going to need a lot of work, but very different than the combination of circumstances uh, almost four years ago that made me look around and think, you know, maybe I have the right combination of traits to to bring that change. It's why I competed. Uh, we had the election and the end Tom Perez won. And uh, I'm really grateful for the work that he and the team are doing, especially in making sure that we update the party to the times. Uh, what we could not have imagined, any of us then, uh, was that the stakes would be even higher in the 2020 election than we thought. And that, uh, talk about innovation, uh, the party would be compelled to figure out how to do its entire convention uh, on terms uh, not imagined until a few months ago. And I'm pretty sure that some of the things we've seen in the way the convention is going right now 
uh, are going to stay with us. I don't think, you know, I certainly hope that the pandemic would be a distant memory by 2024, uh, but something tells me the convention then is not going to look like it did in 20, 2016. Do you think when people in northern Indiana turn on television in, at night, on Monday night or tonight or on Thursday night when you speak and they, they see this specific lineup, do they see a party that's speaking to them? Yeah, I mean, uh, here's what we saw last night. Uh, we saw voices from cities and from rural areas. We saw Americans going through everyday life, uh, Republicans, former Republicans and current Republicans, progressives like Bernie Sanders, uh, and of course, uh, Michelle Obama, somebody who is well-regarded across party lines, all pointing in the same direction. And that's the kind of message that I think is gonna be really important in order to reach places like the part of the country where I live that haven't always felt like the Democratic Party was speaking to us. Uh, what I think came across loud and clear last night, and I think will uh, continue to be a, a theme throughout this week, is that you, know, you don't have to be a diehard Democrat to understand that this country is headed in the wrong direction, that we need change and we need change as quickly as possible. But what else needs to be done to reach out to those so-called future former Republicans, to use your phrase from earlier this year. Having former Governor Kasich and former Governor Whitman, that goes so far, perhaps. But what else to reach out to Republicans needs to be done in your view? Well, I continue to think it has to be at the level of values. Uh, you know, uh, some people are conservative because they really care about national security. And maybe there was a time when they felt that meant they ought to vote Republican, but today, when the President of the United States hears about bounties on the heads of American soldiers and does nothing about it, when he's more likely to trust Russia than he is to trust our own U.S. intelligence community, including people who put their lives on the line in order to get him good information, when the President himself avoided serving, and when our national security is becoming uh, more and more endangered by the day, uh, I think those very same things that might have motivated somebody before to be a Republican now point in a different direction. If you're a conservative because you're a person of faith and you hear as you're sitting in the pews uh, a word, a scripture that is about taking care of the vulnerable or just as a matter of personal conduct uh, that we ought to seek leaders who uh, walk in the way of humility and decency and you see what the Republican Party today has become, you may realize that it is no longer uh, the home that you thought it was as a voter of faith. If you're a conservative because you believe in fiscal responsibility, uh, you uh, certainly do not have a home in the current Republican Party the way that they've run things, even before uh, we got to the pandemic, which of course has forced a different level of spending and investment in order to stay ahead of economic catastrophe. My point is on issue after issue, I think we're at a moment like we haven't seen in generations for people to cross party lines, not just in this particular election, but perhaps a new realignment as more and more Americans come to see that the values and the interests uh, that are at stake are better served by different leadership than what this Republican Party has to offer. You spent some time on the campaign trail with former President Jimmy Carter. He's going to speak tonight at the convention. He also reached out to religious voters, evangelicals, uh, particularly in his first race in 1976. Can Democrats peel away any of those voters from the Trump-Pence coalition, and how do they do that? Well, I think part of it is, uh, and I'm sure we'll see this from President Carter because it's, it's characteristic, you, you can feel it when you're near him and you can see it whenever he speaks, is that moral call. Look, I, I think often we're policy people, we uh, as Democrats often think and talk in policy terms, which is fine. 
but it's important for us to talk about the moral stakes behind those policies, especially at a moment like this. And I think what we've seen, uh, Reverend Barber, uh, who I really admire, uh, who's leading the, uh, helping to lead the Poor People's Campaign, uh, has put it this way. Uh, we're hearing from uh, Republicans so much about what God says so little and so little about what God says so much. Um, there's a chance for a different way to connect with folks. We may not reach everybody, uh, and there's a diversity of opinion among the faithful in this country, just as there's a diversity of opinion within the big tent of the Democratic Party. But what I know is that there's a moment as never before to reach out to people who I know are questioning whether the kind of conduct, personal and political, that they see out of this president is in any way consistent with a Christian tradition or, frankly, any faith tradition that I've ever heard of. And Vice President Pence is someone you know well from Indiana politics. You got noticed early on in the campaign for drawing a response from Vice President Pence. Usually he doesn't do that sort of thing by getting in a political back and forth with a Democratic presidential candidate. Because of all that experience, Mayor, whether it's formal or informal, are you going to be involved in talking to Senator Harris as she gets ready for that debate with Vice President Pence? Well, I've gotten to know Senator Harris well, first, uh, of course, when we were competing, and uh, and then since then uh, as friends. And uh, of course, I'll, I'll do everything that I can uh, officially or unofficially to be helpful. That being said, I, I don't think she needs a lot of coaching from somebody like me. She has uh, demonstrated not just in debates, but uh, certainly uh, in the Senate in some really remarkable moments in committee hearings that she understands how to puncture hypocrisy, how to get to the core of an issue, and she won't allow people to get away with contradictions the way that Mike Pence has, frankly, very much tried to get away with ever since he signed on and lent his credibility in the conservative movement to this president. I mean, for uh, the vice president to uh, continue to maintain that, I mean, even if you just leave aside the policy, uh, for him to continue to maintain that a person who got caught sending hush money to a porn star ought to be the moral as well as the political leader of the United States of America. That is something that has to be called out. And I know that Senator Harris is somebody who will uh, not get him, let him get off the hook when it comes to the facts and when it comes to the values behind the facts. But stick with this for a second, Mayor, because you've, you've, you've observed Vice President Pence as a governor, as vice president. You've thought about him and how he operates politically. What's an insight you could offer to Senator Harris about him, about certain kinds of things uh, that she could attack in a in a debate setting? Well, one thing I personally believe to, to be true, just because I know him, is that deep down he knows that this is wrong. I think deep down he knows that he's part of something wrong. And I think that uh, she ought to, uh, frankly, bring that out uh, when this uh, campaign proceeds to the point that she's in a position to debate him. Uh, you know, you can also uh, look at, at just what uh, has happened on this ticket and what's happened in this administration. Uh, you know, the governor, uh, when he was governor, had a mixed record when it came to competence in here in the state. In fact, one of the uh, worst moments uh, on his watch was uh, an epidemic. Uh, there was an HIV outbreak in southern Indiana, and he took a very long time uh, before authorizing the steps that were needed uh, in a uh, very low-income uh, rural area to, uh, to intervene and, and to stop that from spreading and harming more people. Um, there is a through line, I think, from that show of incompetence 
to what's happening now as the Trump-Pence administration has allowed America to become the worst in the developed world at handling this pandemic with lives on the line. Uh, and uh, I think that's, uh, that's really important territory to cover and to discuss. But just as importantly, frankly, I, I've got very strong feelings about uh, the uh, failed leadership of Donald Trump and Mike Pence, but this isn't just about them. Look, from a Democratic perspective uh, or an American perspective, I think what we're up against ought to be motivation enough, but uh, this isn't just about what we're against, it's about what we're for. Uh, you know, you see in Joe Biden somebody whose instinct is to heal and not to divide, somebody whose uh, desire is to bring Americans together. And in Kamala Harris, somebody whose very presence on the ticket and whose presence in the vice presidency is historic and really enacts America's best quality, which is that uh, our country at its best is one that uh, can uh, expand in terms of inclusion and belonging and empowerment. It's got a long way to go. Uh, but it's a big step forward uh, even for her to take this historic place on the ticket. Um, these are just some of the things we can look forward to in addition to actual policies that are going to raise wages and uh, get more Americans access to health care and child care, beat back this virus, get ahead of climate, uh, make our communities safer. Uh, we've got a lot to look forward to, not just a lot that we've got to change and, and bring an end to in this period of, of chaos and, and division that, that is life in the Trump era. Mayor, some people may not know about it, but there was a recent a few stories about your upcoming book. You're writing a book about trust, and it's that's a big theme: trust in American politics, in American life, trust in institutions and leaders. And I know, Mayor, you probably have a long list of eras areas where you believe Republicans have eroded trust. But this is the week of your party's convention. What's one area you believe Democrats need to do a better job? in terms of the public trust? Well, I think that uh, regardless of which party you're in, we've got to do a better job of making sure that people feel that they can trust American institutions. Uh, that means making sure that, again, our democracy is in better shape. Look, the truth is, historically, uh, things like gerrymandering have been a bipartisan sin, although uh, now uh, it's really Democrats who talk about improving them. As long as uh, that goes on, it erodes trust that uh, votes count. Uh, I think there uh, is a serious deficit in certainly trust for voters of color, uh, black voters who trust the Democratic Party more than the Republican Party, but have been given a lot of reasons to be skeptical of the political system as a whole. And uh, just because uh, our party has so much more support among voters of color doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of work to do there in building trust. We've also got to make sure that we are establishing a sense of a shared field of fact. We may have different values, we may have different interests, but if we're not in the same reality, then we're not even having a debate. We're all just as Americans talking past each other. That gets harder and harder to cope with, with the patterns of social media and the way information moves around right now. Uh, we've got to address that so that people uh, simply trust uh, what they see, uh, trust the basics of information. This is gonna be really important for beating back the pandemic, uh, where, for example, right now, a shockingly high proportion of Americans uh, have such little trust in institutions that they have expressed doubt on whether they'd even get a vaccine when a vaccine is developed. Uh, but there are also tons of parallels between what's going on right now with the pandemic and what's upon us or is about to be upon us when it comes to climate change. We've got to put a lot of intentional work 
on building up forms of trust, social and political, so that we can navigate these issues together, even or especially when we have disagreements about exactly what to do. On that point about vaccines, do you think Vice President Biden in the final 80 or so days of this campaign should be talking more about vaccines and trusting what comes out of that process in the coming year? Well, I do think that everybody in a position of visibility has a responsibility to reassure Americans about the importance of getting vaccines. You know, uh, when uh, uh, they developed a vaccine for, I believe it was polio, uh, it, it took some work to get people to really believe that that was uh, something that they should take advantage of. They enlisted Elvis to uh, get a vaccine uh, on television, it was televised, and it had a huge uh, impact. Um, you know, even around here in South Bend, I'm obviously no Elvis, but when flu shot season came around, uh, I would uh, sometimes encourage uh, uh, local TV crews to come along while I got my flu jab, just to remind everybody that it was safe and easy and effective. Uh, I think that that's something that should be uh, non-political, bipartisan, and that uh, uh, figures of visibility, uh, especially those who can speak to communities that uh, have been given reason not to trust uh, American institutions or, or even the American medical establishment, if you go back into history. Uh, we need figures from not just politics, but uh, the academy, sports, entertainment, uh, really anybody who has an audience to talk about the importance of getting this vaccine once it exists in a safe and effective fashion, uh, because so much depends on making sure that we build up that kind of immunity as a country. But I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. Look, uh, the vaccine we hope is on its way. In the meantime, we just, we just gotta make sure there's more testing, uh, that more people are prepared to get tested. And of course, that more testing is available, something the states are increasingly stepping up to try to arrange since the federal government under President Trump just couldn't get it done. Mayor Buttigieg, in the final few minutes here, talk a little politics. One question I've wanted to ask you for many months is, do you regret your decision to get out when you did of this presidential race? Because as a reporter, I wondered at the time, is he closing up shop Maybe this could be a two or three person race, you versus Biden and Sanders, you versus Sanders. Do you ever look back and say, maybe I got out too soon? No, I uh, look, it's a tough decision to make uh, to get out. You spend uh, so much time, so much effort, every waking minute driving toward one goal. But there came a point where I sat down with the team, we looked at the numbers, and not only was it clear that the path was impossibly steep, but I also came to feel that if I did stay in, and of course there's that part of you that's, I mean, look, my very existence in the race defied all odds. So there's a part of you that says, look, that, that sliver of probability ought to be something I chase after, uh, and maybe it really will come true just as my campaign up to this point has beaten the odds uh, time and time again. Uh, but I also understood that each day I stayed in the race had an effect as well. It, it could have an effect on party unity. It could have an effect on our opportunity to come together and build the coalition that was going to defeat Donald Trump. I got into this race for very specific reasons. I didn't seek the office of the presidency because I wanted to have it. I sought this office because I believed uh, that I could uh, serve to bring the party together and to defeat Donald Trump and to help unify the country. And those very same motivations that propelled me to get into the race, uh, at a certain point, I realized the best way I could stay true to those goals was actually to get out of the race and then uh, to back Joe Biden. And I haven't regretted that for a second. Mayor, you, you often have a, a sunny way of talking about your campaign, but you just mentioned you were the first openly uh, gay major presidential candidate uh, to run for president. Uh, 
Was there a dark side to that experience? Threats or unease as a candidate as you went about your your business of being a politician? Sure, there was. Uh, you know, there were disruptions at our events, especially early on. Uh, I can handle somebody protesting or disrupting an event because they uh, don't agree with the position that I've taken. But for somebody to do that just because they don't like that I exist, uh, that's, uh, uh, that's something that uh, is, is pretty difficult to face. But I got to tell you, uh, that was very much the minority. Uh, there were so many times and so many places and so many unlikely places where I found that people were either supportive very supportive and specifically supportive uh, of the historic nature of our campaign, or they made it clear that they didn't care. They just wanted to know if I had a good plan on mental health or uh, uh, dealing with the, uh, uh, the the need to empower workers and raise wages or whatever else was affecting that individual and their family's life the most. And so, you know, of course, there there were challenges that that came with uh, uh, with with that um, that fact uh, about our campaign. Um, but uh, I was also so uh, moved by the encounters that, that I was able to have, sometimes with people my parents' age who never thought they would, they would live to see a, uh, a gay candidate for president taken seriously, and sometimes uh, young people not even yet old enough to vote who I think or I would like to think or who told me that something about our campaign let them know that they really do belong here. Mayor, you've said you would be honored to serve in a Biden administration. Of course, that's a long ways away, in a sense, not that long. Uh, and you've been pretty coy about what you would do. But people are curious, Mayor, about where your head is at. And you were a naval intelligence officer in Afghanistan. If, you, if asked, are you willing and ready to serve as Secretary of Defense? I'm not going to measure drapes for one job or another because the, the most important thing, and this is exactly where my head is at, is to make sure that Joe Biden wins and that there is a Biden administration. Once there is, I'll do everything in my power to support that. And if that's uh, from within with a return to public service, uh, that, that's something I'd, I'd love a chance to do. If that's from uh, the outside in some other capacity, then that's what I'll do. Uh, but uh, we'll have plenty of time. Uh, to think about things like that once we accomplish this mission that has to be the laser focus of every Democrat. That is to defeat Donald Trump, to bring together progressives, moderates, independents, and a lot of Republicans who are ready to make a change, and to make sure that we elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris because we get exactly one shot to do this. But you've been a consultant, an executive, a mayor. You understand, as you said, your own traits. Do you believe you'd be probably best served doing something such as Secretary of Defense, ambassador to the United Nations, working on housing and urban development? Where do you think your traits could be best be served for this country if there is a Biden administration? So we elect a president to make those kinds of decisions. My job is to make sure we elect the right one. I, I expected you were going to be coy about this, Mayor, but I, I wanted to just try, <laughs> try to prod a, a little bit. But for now, are you based? Are you Are you still based in South Bend politically and personally for the time being? Absolutely, yeah. This is home. Uh, my uh, uh, my mom lives around the corner, and I've been thankful during the uh, uh, the pandemic that uh, Chas and I have been able to uh, visit her and spend time with her. I don't know who's going to break it to the dogs that uh, this arrangement of us being home all the time is not permanent. But uh, uh, you know, I got to tell you, when you go a year and a half on the road all the time, uh, you know, uh, uh, sometimes lucky. Uh, to be at home two nights in a row. 
sometimes likely to be in the same hotel room out on the road two nights in a row. Uh, just the simple fact of, of being reconnected with home is uh, is a, a real blessing uh, amid uh, obviously a, a terrible circumstance. But uh, counting our blessings right now, and uh, uh, yes, this is very much home. And final question here, Mayor. You're speaking on Thursday night. That's the marquee night, the big night right ahead of uh, the nomination, the acceptance speech for Vice President Biden. Give us in a sentence or two the big takeaway from your speech. Well, the biggest thing I want to speak to is that our country is at its best when it makes room for everybody, when it expands the sense of belonging that is such an important part of what any of us need in order to get by. And uh, our country has not always lived up to that promise, but America's promise, which is the theme on Thursday night, is that it can uh, make it possible for everybody to belong. I see that in the, the future of a Biden-Harris administration, and I'm going to share that vision with, uh, uh, with Americans and proud to be a part of just such an extraordinary set of people speaking that night and, and throughout the course of this week. Mayor Buttigieg, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time, and uh, we hope you come back to Washington Post Live at some point. Look forward to it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.